All righty. Well, hey, come on back. <clears throat> Grab your Bible. And if you need a Bible, raise your hands. Brad will get you one back there. If you need a Bible to follow along, or you can follow along on your phone, as long as you're not playing a video game. <laughs> come on, you guys. Come on, lighten up a little bit. You never know. But, well, hey, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. You say, well, really? Christmas, uh, Christmas message, 1 Corinthians 16? Well, let's think about it. Let's think about what 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is talking about. We've just come down from one of the peaks, the high, high, high peaks of the New Testament. I mean, we've just talked about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and our resurrection. I mean, is there, could there be anything more hopeful than that message? I mean, it's one of the peaks here of the New Testament. And when you understand and realize that this is not just some paradigm that we're living, a paradigm of being good little boys and girls, but that we're people who live according to the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, that's what's available to us. That's the life that we receive from Christ. That is magnificent and huge and big and awe-inspiring. When you sing and when I sing, Oh, come, let us adore him, that has to be going through your mind. So then, you might be tempted to think, well, if I was writing the, ch the book or the letter in response to the questions that the Corinthians had, and I just got to the, penul I mean, just the, 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 the peak of all that Christ is and all that Christ has accomplished, and all that it means for you, you might be tempted to put a period there at the end of chapter 15 and stop. And yet, what Paul has been talking about, now really, tune in right here. What Paul has been talking about from 1 Corinthians 1 through 1 Corinthians 15, he's been talking about the church's relationship to the Lord and the church's relationship to one another in here, the people of Christ, and, and, the, and the relationship, you know, at large. But church issues, right? And now, before Paul goes on or concludes, he then casts one more wide net. And that's this. Is that one of the fruits of Jesus' death and resurrection is now in his people 
a sense of responsibility, not just to the local church, but to the church at large, the whole church. What Christ is doing in Africa, Indonesia, Hungary, are you getting it? Here he casts a wider net. Just time out for a minute. Sort of, I want you to know this. We don't mention this enough to you because this is bragging in the Lord about you, his trophy, trophies of grace. And that's this. If you go downstairs in this fellowship hall and you look on the wall, you'll see some of the missions or the missionaries that we support. And I don't know if you know this, because lots of you weren't here when they came and gave this presentation, but you support a couple and their family in the back jungles. I don't even know how to describe it. In Indonesia. That have, trans, have, have, have formed a language so that they could speak to these people and have now put it in, have translated the Bible into that language so those people can hear the gospel. And that's in, I don't even know, the back areas of Indonesia. Here's this family with six, maybe seven kids, and they've quote-unquote given up their life so that others could hear. Really, they've gained life, Jesus tells us, but according to the world, they've given up their life, but they've gained eternity. Uh, you, you support a couple in Hungary. By the way, uh, the, the Indonesian family came through the Reynolds. They were associated. They knew them. We know them through the Reynolds. You, you support a family, a husband and wife team, who translate gospel literature into Hungarian language, and they're from Hungary, but live in Southern California, now moving back to Hungary. COVID's kind of messed that up a little bit, but whatever, they're doing that. And Hungary, right before the pandemic, was opening, or, or excuse me, after the pandemic now with the surge that's sort of up in the air, but they were opening up these massive festivals all across Hungary, and this team was set to give out literature in the post-Christian hungry nation to thousands and thousands of people. And you support them in their translation of those materials, you see. You support the Blue Letter Bible. It's an app on your phone. If you don't have the Blue Letter Bible, it's a wonderful tool to dig into the Word of God. Why is that so important? So that you could be healthy and produce more sheep yourself. You're a sheep. I'm a sheep. We produce more sheep when we're healthy. And when you study and learn and love the Word of God, you come closer to the Lord. So we support that. You support the Human Coalition, or I think the name's changed again, but you support the Human Coalition fighting the fight against abortion. And you support them significantly. Significantly. Um, there's others, okay? I'm going blank now as I'm thinking of all the things I need to think about. But what I'm saying is, that's what the church does. And Paul here sort of 
after he tells us about this amazing and grand and glorious doctrine that is the reality of Jesus, that he's the first fruit, which means he's first, but you're all coming. You're the harvest. We're the harvest. He then says, but now concerning the collection for the saints. He's now talking about, in verse 1 here, he's talking about, and he refers to it in several places in his writings. He's referring to the home base of the church. Where was the home base of the church? The home base of the church is in Jerusalem, in Israel. And they had gone through many things. Think about it. First of all, there was a famine, we're told, that may have impacted them. But secondly, think about the people in Jerusalem who have become born-again Christians who were called the way. They came out of everything they were involved in, their Jewish synagogue. They might have been, I don't know if shun's the right word, but their families upset with them. They might have even lost jobs over this thing that they've, or this person they've committed their life to, right? And the church, for a lot of different reasons in Jerusalem, is really struggling. Now, you remember, Paul is writing this letter in Ephesus, Turkey, to a church, Corinth, in southern Greece. So they're quite a bit a ways away from Jerusalem. But several places in Paul's writing, Acts 11... Acts 24, Romans 15, 26. In 15, 26, he says that the people of the way, the people in the church in Jerusalem are in a poor way. They are, they're having it rough, you see. And you also see it, uh, a big chap, two chapters on it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the excellency of giving. But here he refers to this collection for the saints. So what's going on? Paul as he's talking and sharing with different churches around the ancient world that he was ministering to or had a role in, he was taking up a collection to eventually send back to the church in Jerusalem. Everybody catch that? So you say, wow, the collection for the saints. That's what we're going to talk about. By the way, here's another little rabbit trail. Sometimes I've had people sort of upset about the structure here. There's something in your bulletin that says if, for, for, for giving, there's a box back there. And I can see it. It's right beside John Kennedy. And in that box, you can put your offerings. But we don't pass the plate. And some people are used to passing the plate. But we've just been... We're we're not against passing the plate necessarily, but we feel for our situation, as we've prayed about it, we just want this to be according to you and the Lord, no pressure, there's the box, and give. And people have said, well, why don't you talk about it more? Well, here's why. And I'm I'm sort of being cheeky, but I'm really not. Maybe you came on a day when it wasn't 1 Corinthians 16. (laughs) But if you stick around long enough, you're going to hear about giving. Everybody track it with me? So here it comes. It says this in 
chapter 16, verse 1, concerning the collection for the saints. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Lay something aside. Uh, Storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now let's just take a time out right here. And let's just see from here and, of course, the other places that talk about giving. You could look again in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. What are some principles of giving? Giving. Now you go, wow. Giving. My man's really going to talk about giving during Christmas. But you see, if you don't understand this principle, you don't understand giving at all. (laughs) Giving your resources, whether that be money or time or worship or greeting, or selling the books, or not selling, we give them out for costs, but you know what I'm saying, uh, or, or setting up the donuts, or cleaning up after, whatever you do, you see, if you're doing it out of an obligation or a duty, you're doing it wrong. Because you're doing these things as unto the Lord, which means it's worship, and the reason or the power in which you're doing it, it's because God has been so gracious to you, the outflow of your life is grace, and grace is giving. (laughs) God so loved the world, don't forget it, and you haven't forgotten it, that he gave. As soon as you see gave, you go, wow, the grace of God. It's giving. It's giving. It's giving. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, God wants us to be, first thing, a cheerful giver. Now he knows there's something about money that sort of really trips us up. Am I right? I remember this. I tell this story every time I get here, but it's so perfect to me. When I was in law school, I had to travel to New York from Columbus, Ohio by bus. I'd never been to Pittsburgh in my life, but I stopped at the bus station down here. And this dude, I'll never forget it. How he did it, it still makes my blood boil. (laughs) He conned me out of 20 bucks. Sitting there at lunch one day. And you would have thought I lost a gazillion bucks. I mean, for my whole two-week trip, I just had a pit in my stomach that I let that guy con me out of 20 bucks. 20 measly bucks. You ever had somebody overcharge you on a credit card or a telephone bill? What happens to you? Oh, is it only me? It's like you feel violated, you feel cheated, you feel, I'm, right? There's something about money. It's not the money itself, it's that love of money, and it can really hook us, right? But Paul says in another chapter, it's a cheerful giver that has it right, and the only way I part with our money is recognizing it's not my money at all. 
God's blessed us with it. It's not something to hold on to and to hoard up. No offense, Dave Ramsey. Of course you apply the Dave Ramsey principles and be good about that. But God loves a cheerful giver. (laughs) Just boom. That's the first thing. Giving is an act of grace. And you can see it here, right here. It's actually an act of worship. Have you ever thought of that? Giving is an act of worship. How do I know from this verse or these verses? Because he said, I want you in this collection to give on the what day of the week? When did the church meet? The first day of the week, which means they were having their worship service. Giving was coming and being put in the plate or the box or the hat or whatever. At the time that they were worshiped, giving was an act of worship. Isn't that fascinating? Giving was an act of worship. It was on the first day of the week, which also implies this. It was systematic and planned out. You you were going because later it says give as you prosper. As you've been prospered, give. So you don't just show up coming up the steps and go, shoot, how much did we make this week? No, what you say is you're at home and you recognize what the Lord's blessed you with. And you know that on the first day of the week, you're attending. And Paul says here, on the first day of the week, bring your gifts. Not only was it grace-driven, it was or is an act of worship. It's also planned out and systematic. Are you getting that? Who here, think about it, think about it. Who here has ever sat down on Friday when you get the paycheck or the direct deposit now and said, Lord, I want to just recognize that this is yours, not mine or ours, and I'd just like you to direct me on how you'd like me to give to the local church, how much, when, systematically, help me plan this out. I mean, think about that. That's sort of something I've never really heard people pray about. Well, here Paul says it's systematic. Well, he also says this, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Giving is for everybody in the church, no matter how much money the Lord's blessed you with or not. And you know this from Jesus and him in Mark Watching people give at the temple treasury. He, it actually says, folks, Jesus watched how they gave. Isn't that interesting? And you know the story. The rich people were putting stuff in there. But this poor lady brought and gave sacrificially just a little amount. And Jesus just went, ah, that's it. It cost. It was a sacrifice to her. So here's the principle. All of us are to be systematic, graceful givers as an act of worship, prayerfully thought out, but it also must cost. Be a sacrifice. That's what Jesus looks for. I want you to notice something else here. Maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. Remember, he's going to take this collection and take it down to Jerusalem, but he is interested in financial integrity. 
How do I know? Because he says, I want you to find somebody really, really trustworthy in the fellowship, and I want you to appoint them to go with us so that they can oversee so none of the money sort of disappears as they, you know, sail down to Jerusalem. Did you catch that? And so, you know, as a church, what do you have to do? You have to find out a financial team, and the Lord's blessed us with some pretty gifted people in that area who just sort of keep that area of the church running and safe and upright and, uh, you know, all receipts for things bought, you know, a whole shooting match. But, but he says, that's it. You must be or have integrity in your giving. Now, you think, well, wow, that's sort of, what is that all about? And why would that have anything to do with, you know, Christmas and lights and all? But see, that, see that's the heart of Christmas. It's that Jesus came, bore our sins, died and rose again, and gives us new life. And as part of that new life, we want to count on his resurrection power. And then in here, we want to get along in love. And folks, that's easier said than done. But then on a wider scale, because of our new life, we're interested now in helping people around the world. If you'd have told me that 25 years ago, that I'd be interested in sending my money or your money, you know what I'm saying? In my previous life without Christ, that don't interest me one bit. But with Christ, there's this desire to help and to bless because you're overflowing with God's grace and mercy and you want everyone else to know too, right? Until he comes, just laying out your whole life so more people will know and experience and the love and joy and peace of Jesus Christ himself. See, that's what this is all about. You're ca- Paul's casting a wider net that we get and receive when we have Christ. Now, look at this, verse 5. I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. And then in parentheses, he goes, because I am going to come to Pat Macedonia. Matt, what's Macedonia? It's Greece, and Corinth was in southern Greece. He says, when I get to Greece, I'm going to shoot down to southern Greece, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey whenever I go. For I don't wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you. And then he said, if the Lord permits... James reiterates that thought, and it's an interesting thing. Don't always just tell the Lord what you're going to do. If the Lord tarries, this will happen, James tells us. Here, Paul says, I have these plans. Now, for you maniacal planners, I'm the opposite. I'm the maniacal non-planner. So for both of us, if you're a maniacal planner or if you're like me and you're a maniacal non-planner, watch this. Paul made plans to go to Macedonia. But without telling you the whole story, it sort of didn't work out this way. 
he is smart to have said, if the Lord permits. There's this blessedness, planners. Yes, plan and have pray about it and have a goal and a direction and a vision. But if the Lord shuts the door there, don't try to force a round peg into a square hole. Maybe the Lord's doing something else. Remember, Paul really wanted to go to a place called Ephesus. And in Acts 16, it's it's told to us that the Holy Spirit said, don't do that, Paul. But in Acts 19, later, we're going to examine that here in a minute, Paul went and God did an unbelievable work there, just amazing work. So planners, it's good to have a plan, but if the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, changes that plan, that's his will and right to do that. He's sovereign. Don't just stick to the plan because it's your plan. By the way, it's good for us non-planners to have vision, the Bible tells us, and to pray about things and to do that as well, but also then to listen to the Holy Spirit and don't brag about it in that way because the Lord does want you to have things that are on your heart and you're wants you to do. So, you know, you could be a non-planner like me who just sort of scattered all the time and missed the things that the Lord wants. Everybody catching that? Here, think about it. This is Paul, folks. I want you to know this. He, he's Paul. <laughs> he's the guy who sets up the churches. I mean, there would be an amazing temptation to start thinking like that. I'm the guy, Lord. Look what I've been doing. And I say, Lord, we need to go here. Now, you kind of laugh at that because who would ever say that to the Lord? And yet, that's how we pray a lot. Lord, you better do it because this is on my heart. I want to do it. Well, Paul, or Paul says here, I'll do it if the Lord permits. And he was able to be flexible. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, watch this, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And I want you to know something here. I want you to think about it, write in your notes if you're a note taker. It doesn't say, but there are many adversaries. It says, and there are many adversaries. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, oh, shoot, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus until Pentecost, for there's been this door open to me, but man, there are many adversaries. I'm thinking about quitting. Actually, Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's saying there's many adversaries right there in Ephesus, so I know it's the place that you have for me. Are you catching that? See, here's the thing where there's great opportunity to deliver the gospel and to share with people, there always comes great adversity. Because you have, we have, when we're venturing out in that way, enemies against us. First of all, you have the enemy of our souls, Satan and his minions. He hates God and he hates his people. And he wants to just get you to stop and to quit and to make you to feel 
or to make you feel discouraged and depressed and lonely and scared and fearful and that God's not in it, so you'll just quit. There's also the world's system of thinking. When you venture out into faith, the world there is going to be saying, what are you, some religious nut? You have all these different ideas and they're going to call you names. They're going to come on different uh, 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 television shows and they're going to talk about how you believe in traditional Christian values and that that is outdated and you, you know what I'm saying, right? But Paul here said there's a great ineffective door and I want you to just turn over with me to Acts chapter 19 where you see the story of this city in Turkey in which, by the way, out of this church, remember the seven letters that were written to the seven churches in Revelation? They were born out of this church. This was a powerful church. Uh, Oh, I went to Ephesians 19, and that won't work because there's not enough chapters. But here in Acts... When you get to chapter 19, just sort of skim along with me. Watch what happens here in Acts 19. At the beginning of Acts 19, Paul finds himself passing through the upper regions and comes to Ephesus. And he finds the disciples and they become filled with the Holy Spirit. They become filled with the Holy Spirit. They look in verse 5 and 6 and 7. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And the men were about 12 in all. And then he did what he always does when he found a place where there were Jewish synagogues. Watch. He went into the synagogues and he spoke boldly for three months. He taught right in the synagogues, but he taught the gospel. I mean, you talk about bold, man. And he reasoned with them and he persuaded with them the things of the kingdom of God. Uh, and, but look, right in verse 9, some were hardened and didn't believe, but spoke evil of the movement before the multitude. So he withdrew the disciples, and then he went to this school of Tyrannus. Everybody remember this? What kind of hard work is this? And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greek. Now, what was Paul doing when he wasn't in the synagogues or when he wasn't teaching? He was exercising or practicing his craft with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla who had moved with Corinth with him uh, to Ephesus, right? When he finally gets to Ephesus, what do they do? They make tents. That's their occupation. So he's working, he's teaching, he's sharing, he's doing all this. And it says in verse 11, amazing, right? That God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Not just usual miracles. Un, you know, is a, isn't a miracle pretty usual? I mean, unusual? And here he's saying these were really unusual. And so he even did some exorcisms there, you see. And when the things were accomplished, look at this. Oh, wait, 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 sorry. And then Verse 18, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. There was this great confession of sin, fruit, over two and a half years of, or two plus years of doing this. And many believed came confessing their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic 
brought their books and burned them in the sight of the Lord. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And then there was this guy. Look down in verse 23. There arose a great commotion about the way, or the Christians, for a certain man named Demetrius. He gets ticked off. He's a silversmith. And the impact that the gospel is having on Ephesus did such an amazing work that it spread throughout the city, including taking the people who were making idols for all the idols in Ephesus, and it decreased their margins or profits. And when that happened, man, they got ticked. I mean, they got angry, and they came against him, and they're a riot breaks out. You get this? When they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is the Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. Verse 30, And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples wouldn't allow him. Then some of the officials of the Asia were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them didn't know why they'd come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense with his people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana. They, they just shouted him down. Are you getting that? This was an ugly scene, man. And there were charges to be brought against them. And, and you know all of this. There was danger. And so I just wanted to show you, when he talks about there's lots of adversaries, it's not just the guy in the next cubicle saying, oh, you read your Bible, huh? It's not that. He's out in the marketplace of ideas going out, not just staying in the walls of the church, he's going out and he's ministering and sharing the gospel and people are getting saved and the whole city's being impacted and when that happened, the forces of hell get unleashed. You get it? And Paul says, watch this, here in my natural flesh, I'd say, Lord, 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 oh Lord, just take me to a golf course and North Carolina, and just sit me there for retirement, Lord. I don't need this anymore. Here's what Paul prays. I can't quit. Help me, Lord. This is exactly the place that you have for me. Remember, this is fascinating. In Acts 16, as I mentioned earlier, it was shut off. This city was shut off to him by the Holy Spirit. And about three or th four years later, it becomes open. So what was the Lord doing? Watch this. The Lord was preparing the people of Ephesus' heart. Oh, I might have put too many S's in there. And he was also preparing Paul. So that at the exact right time and the exact right place, a called man or woman, but a called man in this case, came to the place that was prepared by the Lord, and boom, the gospel exploded. So you might be saying to yourself, Lord, I know I'm called to do that, but why haven't you opened up the doors yet? 
Well, maybe he's still preparing you like he prepared Paul. Paul went through a jailing. He was put in prison in Philippi during this interim. I mean, these are th- hard things that this guy, what guy went through. And when you read that story, you go, man, when they unlocked the doors, the, you know, the doors got open miraculously, I would have ran. <laughs> Paul just stayed in there and kept ministering to the jailer. <laughs> Come on now. God was preparing his heart so that at the right time, he met the right place for the ministry. Everybody getting it? So when you turn back to Act, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 16, sorry. <laughs> when you go back to 1 Corinthians 16, you see that it's great to be flexible. You might have your plans. God may be in those plans, but sometimes he holds off on those plans to prepare you in the place or you in the ministry. And we know that when it's hard and difficult, that's where the enemy attacks. It must be effective. That's where the enemy attacks. Effective man or woman meets ministry prepared. That's where the enemy is going to attack. If you're venturing out and it's just smooth sailing and you're on Instagram all day and checking your latte for how warm it is and you got all the, you know, the Spotify going with everything and you got all the great clothes and everything's perfect and you're putting it up everywhere and it's just, man, my life is so perfect and the implication is yours is not, well, maybe it's because you're not effective anywhere. Because when you get close to ministering to people who are going to surrender their life to Jesus Christ, the enemy attacks. But when we're doing things that are just vanity, just going through the motions, nothing, why would the enemy even care? Here he says this in verse 10. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me. For I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now, you know, Paul knew this bunch was a squirrely bunch. And in fact... Do you remember in 1 Timothy 4, I believe it is, where Paul actually writes to Timothy himself and says, hey, Timothy, don't let anybody despise your youth. Remember that? And we know that Paul told him he needed to take some medicine for (laughs) what seemed to be maybe some nervous anxiety ulcer type stuff because, you know, Pastoring people will do that to you. That's a joke. But it does. And he had this thing. And, and we know that really interesting that Paul was mentoring this young guy who wasn't always perfect. I mean, he feared and he had nervousness. and he, Right? And Paul would help him. And, and so when he's writing the letter back to the Corinthians, he said, now wait a minute. Timothy's coming to you. Treat him okay, will you? (laughs) Because he's doing really well. He does the work of the Lord, just like me. So don't think 
he's lesser than me. And that tells you something about Paul in the early church, you see. Paul didn't lord it over people. You catching that? He's saying, this guy's just like me. He's a young dude learning and growing like I'm a guy learning and growing. Catch that? But he says right back to them, but let no one despise him. Don't lash out at him. Don't be tender with him and then send him on his journey that he may come to me for I'm waiting for him with the brethren. He loved Timothy and Timothy loved him. And here's something that you can take from this. And this is what I love right here, right now. There's no distinction between old and young in the church. We ought to be sitting together, worshiping together. Look, we have people right here in high school, junior high, whatever. And here we are all together just ministering and growing and loving together. That's the way it ought to be. So here, you have that. Now look, concerning our brother Apollos. (laughs) You go, wait a minute. Why does he do this here? Well, this is a concluding remarks. Sorry. But it's also telling you something. There are some assets in the church that you need to pay attention to. One was giving. But now he advances and he says, you, you, you know what's really the asset of the church, Corinthians? The people. The people. The thing that the Lord loves and wants to help and grow with are the people. Here you have Paul himself. Then you have Timothy, this young guy who was timid. Now he flips it. He's got Apollos. And this dude, when you read about his life, you go, wow, he was an eloquent orator. But he was also, look, watch this, very, very teachable and humble. Because one time when he's giving a message, Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife team, take him into their home and say, hey, you know what? You don't have the full story of the gospel. And I want to give it, or they wanted, I, we want to give it to you. And they do. And guess what he does? He learns from it and he moves forward. Isn't that beautiful? He learns from it and moves forward. Well, here's this guy, this Apollos, who's this amazing orator. He's a co-laborer with Paul. And look at this. If I could have one scripture for the church and just pin it on the back wall in big, big letters, this might be it. Paul says, I strongly urged Apollos, him, to come to you with the brethren. Here's what I did. I went to Apollos and said, hey, Apollos, remember in, uh, when everybody loved it when you preached or Paul preached or, or I preached, excuse me, uh, Paul says, or Peter preached or Jesus, they were, they, there were sects and there were divisions I think you should come with me to Corinth, and let's get this straight. Let's go. Paul loved Apollos. Apollos loved Paul. He says, hey, come along with me to Corinth, and we'll talk to the people, and we're going to fix that division issue. Guess what Apollos said? No. Mm Mm-mm. That's not what I'm led to do. Look at this. Paulo says he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Now, you know what could happen right there with Paul, who was the guy who orchestrated setting up all these churches? Who is he to deny my request to go on a trip with me? You see that? 
I can't believe that Apollos would say that to me. There's never any hint of that. Here's what Paul said. Oh, shoot, the Lord was leading him somewhere else and leading him to do something else. I still love the brother, even though we've disagreed. You guys are like, why are you so excited about that? Well, just be involved in church life for a while. People get upset about pews or chairs or donuts or no donuts or sitting somewhere where I need to sit or you got to do this ministry and how come he asked you and you didn't ask me. And and before you know it, you're like, what is happening, man? We can disagree about stuff and still love one another. And Paul shows us that right here. Watch this. Oh, good segue. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Be done, or let all that you do be done with love. Well, watch is a pretty interesting thing because you know this. Jesus commanded us to watch in Matthew 24. Paul warned Christians in a couple places to stand fast in their liberty. So there's watch and stand fast. Paul said in your liberty, in unity, those are in different places in the Bible, in the Lord himself stand fast, and in the teaching of the apostles. Okay? So you have this watch where Jesus commanded us to watch, and you also have this stand fast in the faith. And those standing fast can mean many things throughout the New Testament, but it appears to be There's this thing where you're relating to the Lord and waiting on him and being sober and vigilant and alert, watching for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just that, but that impacts the way that you live. That's the point. You not only watch, but you stand in the faith. The way in which you walk it out, you're standing, is important. You don't just watch and sit in your house and watch. While you're being sober and vigilant and dutiful in the good way, in the right way, you're living it out. You're living in this unity. You're spreading the gospel. You're involved in teaching and learning and growing. You're standing fast in the faith. And you need to be brave and to be strong. That's really a fascinating verse right there because in the language it's sort of like Uh, Don't take this the wrong way, but you know, like, man up. And I don't think it's something against women or anything like this. Remember, he called the Corinthians, I think in chapter 3, babies. And what he's saying is grow and mature. Mature people watch and stand fast and then grow. They don't stay the same. They're growing in the Lord to a place where they become brave. But look, bravery doesn't mean... You kill people with your courage or, no, you love them. (laughs) You know, the testosterone that sort of rolls around in the popular books to be a man and all that sort of thing. And yeah, I I get it. Step into your role as a man, of course, but step into your role as a, a woman too. But what I'm saying is, if all you're doing is just lifting weights and testosterone and throwing that around, and that becomes your God, 
man, you, you got to watch it because your bravery and courage means mature with love. And if you need to know what love is, you just turn back to 1 Corinthians 13. And then look, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia. It, uh, it appears that Stephanus and his household were baptized in chapter 16 of verse 1. We don't know much about them, but here's something that's good. They've devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. It actually is a word that is used in addiction or for addiction here. It's like they're addicted to being hospitable and to refreshing the saints. That's what this is saying here. That you also, watch this, submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. There's a mutual submission in the Christian life that people don't want to talk about anymore. We would just want to be an island unto ourselves. We don't want to have anybody come and talk to us about this or that in love. We don't want that. We just want to be an island to ourselves, slip in the back, do our little ceremony service, and go home and watch the football and eat the food. We don't want the interaction so much in America. But here, that's not what this says. There's a mutual submission here that we... Submit to one another. And then he says, I'm glad about the coming of these, of, of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. Watch this. Man, Paul admitting it. <laughs> what did Paul admit? That he needed refreshed inside. Paul needed refreshed inside? Are you kidding me? For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Do you know what's so great and what's really wonderful? Is when we as leaders or the church or each other, it doesn't have to be the leaders, we, when we come across the aisle, maybe, hey, listen, maybe this aisle who never ventures to that aisle and that aisle who never ventures there, and then I don't know what to do with you people in the middle. Maybe when you, you see something that the, they're doing in the Lord, you go across the aisle and you say, you know what, that's amazing how you interact with that person or how you cheer people up or how you give that gift or how you give that smile or how you give that hug. Here's something, two things. They refresh my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. When people have gifts like this, point it out. And then I also want you to know, don't feel sorry for me, but the people who lead you in the Word, in church, you don't always have to be a burden to them. <laughs> I just got to say it out of the Word. How about sometimes just asking how they're doing? See, see if they need refreshed right? And I'm not talking about me. I don't want you to feel sorry for me, but I'm saying, I'm saying at the church at large, oh yeah, maybe you have a disagreement with them. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But how about sometimes not just always pouring out the burden? How about blessing them too? Now you say, are you, again, I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me. I'm just preaching down the word here. <laughs> 
Well, what about this? The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you. And I told you who they are. They greet you heartily in the Lord with the churches that is in their house. They had a church in their house in Corinth, and they've uprooted and uh, gone to Ephesus, right? Because Ephesus is where Paul is writing this letter from, and they set up a house church there. They just wanted to minister together. If you are married, if the Lord has brought you a person and you're married, listen, start rowing in the same direction. Minister in those same directions. And here they agreed on a house church. And all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's how the early church did it. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Remember, Paul had a secretary, a person who wrote these letters down. We think in Galatia because... He may have had eye problems. He said when he wrote, he had to make big letters. There's some other things that he talked about. But the point is, at this point, he's dictating the letter to his secretary, and he says, hey, give me the pen. I want to write this. And he says this. Wow. This is what he wants to leave the church with in this letter. Give me the pen. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then he says, O Lord, come. Now, you don't really get the full effect here because this word means anathema, cut off. There's judgment that comes upon. But then the phrase, O Lord, come, is that famous phrase, maranatha, which is actually Aramaic, And Mara means God or Lord, and it means come quickly, Lord. That's Maranatha. That was part of the vocabulary of the early church. Are you catching that? And here what Paul says is, I don't want you to be a poser, a faker. I don't want it to be outward, external religion. I know when you understand the gospel, there's going to come from you a love for Jesus That could never be by just going and going through the motions. Do you catch that? So much so. He says it's a genuine, watch, it's a genuine test of your faith. Do you love the Lord? Now look, if you're here and you're dry, we go through seasons, don't we? We go through seasons, of course. But you remember this. Paul said himself, I just want to know one thing just one thing in my life. There's only, if I could just know one thing, it's just the excellence of knowing Jesus. He said that. David said, like a deer pants for water, I pant for you, Lord. I can't. I mean, I need you. I, I'm, right? And we know in the Gospels, Jesus said, if you really Love him, you obey his commandments. So there's this thing in which those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and are a new creation, they love the Lord. Now, this is a fascinating thing, and I'll close up. Because <laughs> you're feeling convicted sort of right here, I think. Sometimes here, sometimes here. You know he uses the word phileo right here. Not the high word agape, the agape, the unconditional love. It's as if God's graceful in telling us how we're to love him. He just says, if you'll phileo me, not agape, 
Remember Peter when he was restoring Peter and all that? And he said, do you love me, agape? And Peter said, you know that I love you, phileo. And God, the Lord's saying, I know, but do you love me, agape? Remember this? Well, the Lord right here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the word for love, phileo. It's like, oh, just give me what you got. Isn't that beautiful? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What else could we have that's greater than that, than the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord? And then he writes, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I want you to notice something. He's just read, wrote, written, <laughs> the most corrective letter in the New Testament. It's a letter of rebuke. But see, you can tell the truth a corrective letter, and you can still love the people. Folks, you know that the Proverbs tell us, don't just find a friend who will tell you everything you want to hear. If you do that, there's no growth. Find people who will tell you the truth. Those are real friends. Now, folks, if you're a truth lover in here, you're on the old truth side all the time, you don't need to take everything and just whack people over the head with it a hundred times. Sometimes people need a hug, a smile, a kindness, a grace. But in Jesus Christ, there's the perfect balance of both. So let's live according to his resurrection power. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come together and we ask for help in these areas, Lord, <laughs> because sometimes we walk in the flesh and not according to the Spirit, and we need help, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts here today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live according to your word by the Spirit in this world that is really against us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>